Have you all had a good uh, good dinner? <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Pretty nice, huh? Pretty nice to come together and do this. Uh, we, we have to not wait until the next staff member comes for us to do it again. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Kind of fun. And it's good to taste all the good cooking. But uh, right now... Um, want to introduce David Bales to you. And David, why don't you come on up? <laughs> you got a fan out there. <laughs> so David's going to take a few moments, introduce his family to you, and uh, share his heart and, and play for us a little bit. So thanks, David. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Well, um, I want you guys to all know uh, what an honor it is for for me and for our family to be here tonight. This is um, this is this has been a long time of coming and a, a reawakening, really, in a lot of ways of dreams that God uh, placed in my heart um, decades ago. And I don't I don't have a lot of decades to look back on, so it's been most of my life. And when I, but as I've as I've thought through um, this process of, uh, of as God's been bringing bringing me here, conversations that I've had with Chris with the SPRC. Um, just over and over, God's reminded me of, of little little things that he said to me years ago and dreams that he's placed in my heart. And this really is uh, feels much more more like a, uh, a coming together of, of years of things that God had had set in motion in my heart. So it's a, it's a really special time for me and for our family. And uh, I also want to say that I'm really uh, grateful to the SPRC and to the search committee, um, to, to Dane. Uh, Dane's gone tremendously over and above the call of duty over and over to help me get up to speed, figure out what's going on with things. And I'm really looking forward to working with, working with Dane. Um, I'm only beginning to get a chance to get to know Dr. Dunnigan, had a couple conversations with him, but it took all of the first conversation that I had with him to know that, um, that he's the kind of godly leader and the kind of senior pastor that I want to be working with. And so um, I'm looking forward to serving him. Um, I really want to thank um, Chris Burchett, who's just been amazing in this process. Um, I think you guys probably are all aware of the, the kind of insight and focus it, that he brings to the, the, the table, uh, but he has made this process such an enjoyable one, and I, I really I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward. Susan, you have a, you you got a you got a great man, and I'm really looking forward to getting to know you guys as a family too. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's okay. Yeah, yeah. Susan, Susan's saying he's okay. So, um, uh, and, and there's there's also a lot that I, I don't know about First Church, about First United Methodist Church, Carrollton. Um, a lot of things that I'm looking forward to getting to know, but I do already know that this church is blessed with uh, with amazing leadership, and that really is a blessing from God. Um, can I, uh, let's just pray for a minute, if, if, if you don't mind uh, praying with me. God, I thank you for tonight. Um, God, in this place as we come together in this, um, in this incredible facility, um, God, and um, as we realize all the things that you've done um, to, to bring us here, um, God, over, over a century of ministry in this church and um, the things that you've done in each of our individual lives uh, that we sit here tonight together and um, and God, for the things that you have for us, God, that that your uh, that your presence is here, um, God, that your hand um, is on us individually and on our families and on this church, God, that you have for us a hope and a future, and God, uh, best of all, that um, that you got her with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about my uh, family. Uh, my Sarah, my wife, and I have been married for 11 years. We have two children, uh, Noah, who's, uh, who's eight years old, and Savannah is going to be turning six this week. Um, when, we were, when we were talking to our kids about the church and the possibility of the move, Noah had one question. He wanted to know if we were going to have to move, and we told him we aren't. We actually live close, fairly close by, and we're not going to have to move, and he was okay after that. Um, Noah, Noah at eight is also uh, has an encyclopedic knowledge of of dinosaurs of the early, middle, late, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous period. He'll go through the whole thing with you. Uh, if you're ever interested in playing dinosaurs, Noah's the one to do it. But I will warn you, you need to do your research in advance because he doesn't like to have dinosaurs playing together that wouldn't have actually played together. So just make sure you have your time periods aligned because he knows and he'll tell you. Um, Savannah is uh, is six. We we traveled in. Uh, in 2005, to China to adopt her, and uh, um, and and she she is our, our spunky, strong-willed child. Um, and she she is a lot of fun to be around. Uh, on uh, on Friday, I came up to the office to start getting the office sort of set up and do some things. And I brought Savannah with me to help me, 
And I didn't know how that would go with her being five. I figured it could go one of two ways, pretty extreme. And, uh, and she actually got really focused and kind of hunkered down. She was, she was moving some stuff around and taking CDs, and she got them all where she was putting them in a box and keeping them all lined up. And I thought, well, she's doing a great job. And I went over to, to work on something else. And as I was working on it, I heard her say, Daddy, what's this? And um, I turned around, and she had this perplexed look on my face, and she was holding this up. And I said, well, baby, that's a cassette tape. And I'm not sure that I know how to explain that to you. But uh, it's also, it also, it's also, it was also funny when she handed it to me. It reminds me, I had a, it wasn't this out of this Hosanna Integrity series. It was a different, different tape that I just completely wore out about my senior year in, in high school, brought, brought back memories. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's, uh, we have a, we have a really fun family and uh, very much enjoy the time that we have together. Uh, my, my wife, Sarah, in case you're, in case you're wondering, um, we, uh, is, is, not a, is not a musician, so you don't get a two-for-one deal. I, I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> she, she has her hands full with uh, graphic design with our kids. Um, and, and an ironic uh, turn, when Sarah moved from Nashville to Abilene, which is where we met, she'd been working in the advertising side of the music industry in Nashville, um, and I, I had decided before, when I was in college, I dated a couple of vocalists and decided uh, pretty quickly that I did not want to be married to a, another musician. And so I was looking in a different direction. Well, Sarah comes back from Nashville after working in the music industry, and ironically, she left Nashville, decided that she was not going to marry a musician, and uh, also that she was not going to marry somebody who worked in a church. And so uh, you'll just, I'll, that's actually more Sarah's story, and I'll let you, you can ask her and how God kind of worked all that out. It's, uh, <clears throat> she, she has her side of that that, that she sometimes shares. Um, and I grew up as a Methodist PK, um, a preacher's kid, or a TO, as uh, Dr. Dunnigan redirected me in a conversation we had, a theological offspring. I, I, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I don't know if I can actually take the theological offspring title because my parents actually were music educators when I was born. Um, and uh, I was almost a military brat. My, uh, that, was the, that was the plan when they were thinking of having their second. And uh, my father had just returned to civilian life um, in the Panhandle of Texas when I was born after uh, serving uh, in, the, in the Army School of Music in Norfolk, Virginia, and then a, a tour in, v- in Vietnam. And so um, when I was, I just barely escaped all those things and, and started my life as a band director's kid. So I, I, I come, my, de- my father later went to, uh, went to seminary and was a United Methodist pastor. So I kind of come by the music thing and the ministry thing, even being a little bullheaded. I come out by it all really naturally. And um, the thing that I really want to share with you tonight are, um, are, is about some music, and specifically about some of the things that God's, God's taught me through music. And, um, and since I'm going to share what he's taught me through music, what, I, what, I, what I'll start with is, is first with the music. Some of the, th- the songs that, that really imp- impressed me, impressed on my heart when I, was, when I was growing up. When I was very young, I remember going to, to Christian ash- ashrams at Cedar Canyon, if you know what Christian ashrams are. Um, we, um, our family would go, and, um, and, and as a little kid, I remember in the, in the 70s singing songs, um, a lot of scripture choruses, and, and these are some of the ones... These are some of the songs that, um, that I was thinking of the other day as I was remembering all that time. If you, if you know these, feel free to sing them with me. If you've got dessert in your mouth, you don't have to. But. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Open my eyes, Lord. 
Sometimes when I remember those songs, I think, how could you get better? <laughs> I just, I just love, love them. But I, I know that there are also songs that are special to me because it was, um, it was during those years that, um, that I really came to understand uh, who God was. And I, I really experienced his presence. Um, it, it, it's something that's completely beyond our, our mind's ability to comprehend. And as a kid, it was great because as I experienced that, I just didn't even try. I just accepted it and, and just knew that he was. Uh, Paul has some great words in Ephesians that describe that kind of experience. And he prayed for the Ephesians. I believe it extends that he prayed for us. I know I, I pray for us that our hearts would be enlightened in order that we'd know the hope to which he's called us and the riches, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, in, that, in that passage in the first chapter, he's, he goes on to talk about the immeasurable greatness of his power for us that believe. He talks about Christ's supreme authority and how that authority transcends the material world, transcends the spiritual world, um, how it even transcends time itself. And at the end of the chapter, he tells us that Christ, who is ultimately the authority over everything, that it's Christ who fills everything in every way. And uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like some intellectual or philosophical pursuit, obviously, that I was undertaking to understand God. It it really is God allowed me to come to a knowledge of him at a very young age. And uh, mostly I became aware of him uh, through music and through singing, through worshiping together with other believers. And, um, and I, I can't tell you why it's music and singing that did that for me, but it's, it's, the tr it's just the truth of, of my story, how I came to understand him. And, uh, and I came to understand that God is real, so real, in fact, that, um, that after becoming aware of the reality of who he is, that everything else uh, loses, its, loses its realness, just is plastic if, if I can't find it in context in light of him. And um, that's the first lesson that God taught me through music, very simply, that, that he was real, that he exists. And uh, when we were, uh, the years that we were in seminary, uh, my dad was in seminary. I said we were in seminary. I really did feel like our family got called to ministry. It was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, we were in Wilmore, Kentucky. But through those years in Wilmore and, yeah, woohoo, we got some Wilmore fans. Uh, through those years in, uh, in, in Wilmore or Asbury fans or both, I qualify on, on both ends of that. Through those years at, uh, at Asbury and also um, the first uh, churches that my dad pastored, um, I really got a chance to uh, experience a lot of people, get to know a lot of people that have a lot of varied experiences, varied experiences with the Lord. And, um, and, and, in, and in Kentucky and Wilmore specifically, we had quite a cosmopolitan group of friends because of the draw of Asbury Seminary. And um, we shared all sorts of music uh, that we got a chance to know and sing. Um, my, my family would get together and sing quartets. I was, I was six years old at the time. It was a great, great boon to our family when my voice, voice finally changed to the whole quartet thing worked better. But <clears throat> at the time when I was six and we'd all just sing along just wherever we were. And uh, there's a, there's a, a song um, that I, I, I remember, some of you may actually have heard of this song, but probably have not called, uh, it's a battlefield brother, that, uh, that our family would go around and sing as, as quartets. Anybody ever heard of that song? Just curious. I think it's so obscure. I don't. I actually found it on the internet, but it, so it, did, it really does exist. We didn't make it up. But I think there was a family that was from Australia that was at seminary at the time, and uh, and they taught us this. They they sang it as a family. We'd go around. Um, my uh, my dad would after he finished his preaching class, he'd go preach, and then we'd sing our little quartet. And um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean it was just cheesy stuff, but it, we, we had a lot of fun with it. And we'd sing this. Run if you want to, run if you will, but I came here to stay. If I fall down, I'm going to try to get up because I didn't start out to play. It's a battlefield, brother. It's not a... Uh, 
I messed it all up. It's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. It's a fight and not a game. Run if you want to, run if you will, but I came here to stay. And, uh, and it was a story song, talking song. So then my dad would come in and he'd say, The decree had been signed by the hand of the king, but Daniel still talked to the Lord. The hungry dot lions were facing the den. And uh, at this point, with all my six-year-old muster, I'd say, here comes supper one, Roy. But if you've been around anywhere close, you'd have heard old Daniel say, if you're talking about me, you can forget it, boys, because I came here to stay. And I, you know, all those. <laughs> it, 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 it just made me smile. I, you know, this, this, this whole process and, and remembering all these little times and moments of, of, uh, things that happen and the way that God's woven all sorts of different things together has been really fun. I, I can't even believe we went out in public and sang all that stuff. And now here I am singing in public again. But um, <clears throat> but the uh, when I was learning all those uh, extracurricular Christian songs, I guess, I guess this is, this is still on. Uh, there was there was also, of course, the time to to uh, to sing to sing in church. And for me, uh, there were there were two primary hymnals that I grew up with. The first was the United Methodist Hymnal, the 1964 United Methodist Hymnal. And most of the churches that I grew up in, it was red, and so I called it the Red Hymnal. And uh, and then when we were uh, in, in less formal environments and uh, going out for a retreat or for a hymn sing or whatever, we pull out the Cokesbury. You guys, some of you seen a Cokesbury hymnal before? And uh, so these are those are those were my those were my hymn books growing up, and uh, and there was we'd we'd pull them out, you know, uh, the the Cokesbury to sing, you know, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, washed in His Spirit. Washed in his blood. And this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Amen. Good songs. <laughs> and he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. Cokesbury hymn was all about the fermata. He lives within my heart. And I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice and it spoke thy love to me. How I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord. There's that from out again. To thy precious bleeding side. And, of course, I had number 271. Does anybody know what 271 is? I had 271 memorized because that was uh, the awakening chorus. That, my mother was the, the pianist for most of these uh, engagements, and uh, we both decided that 271 was the hardest one to play. And so when they asked for requests, I'd say, 271, 271. And she, she'd give me a stern look from the piano and, and then and go on to play it uh, seamlessly, just flawlessly. She's a great pianist. And um uh, you know, we'd sing through songs as Eyes on the Sparrow, I Surrender All. I mean, they're just all the, the songs. Those were songs that were just such heart songs for me growing up. And, um, and then, uh, then for, uh, for, for real church, we'd, uh, we'd, <laughs> we'd pull out the, the, the red hymnal and sing what for me were the, seemed like the unchanging great hymns of the faith. Um, oh, oh, four thousand tongues to sing and I'll hail the power of Jesus name. Um, and, and can it be, uh, although, and can it be in the 64 hymnal had the wrong tune. If you, if you if you if you know what I mean, if you want the 1835 Campbell tune, you had to wait until the new one came out. But um, 
but the uh, uh, we'd we'd sing uh, sing out of these hymnals, and and for me growing up, um, I also always adopted uh, an extra set of grandparents everywhere we lived. We always lived far away from my grandparents, and I loved having a, an extra grandmother or grandfather around, so I'd adopt them. They seemed to like me at all worked out. And, um, and, uh, for most of them, I, I started noticing that the Cokesbury hymnal was really their hymnal. I, uh, and, um, and the red hymnal seemed to very much be the preference of my, my parents and people that were just older than my parents at the time. And it wasn't any thing that was like globally true, but it just, it, I started to identify that even as a, as a kid, as a young kid. And, um, and, and that's the second thing that God really taught me is that, uh, genera- generations, uh, generational groups sort of seem to innately know different things about God and, um, their approach to worship and their approach to music, um, tends to reflect those things that they understand about God. Um, moving ahead to now, I, I very much see in the, in the church, um, now, now I'll, let me say too, I didn't, I didn't understand that at the time. It's as I've gone, I mean, I was eight or nine, but I started noticing little things like that when I was eight or nine. And it's been as God's drawn me back to, to people and relationships and to songs that he started to remind me of things and, and, uh, and really reinforced in my heart, the importance of, of music, um, to people. And, um, right now, as I look at the church, it, it seems like there really is a generation that understands, um, uh, that has a, a collective understanding, a shared understanding of what's what's appropriate in, in, in worship, um, and there's a there there is a generation that really does see and understand, just seems to innately have a recognition that's just kind of shared that God is altogether different and holy, that He needs to be honored and respected, and that um, that for us to approach Him, we need to approach Him in a reverential way and not be casual um, uh, about the way that we approach God in worship and approach Him and approach Him humbly, and that that is a that is a biblical understanding of who God is that is important for us to understand as, as a church. Um, I also see a generation that seems to intrinsically understand that we are saved by grace plus nothing, that, uh, that we are saved uh, by grace through faith in Christ alone. And, and not only is it futile for us to try to fix ourselves up to present ourselves to God, but that it would really be tantamount to resisting his grace for us to think that something that we could do would make ourselves acceptable before his grace comes to us. And, and that sets up a whole different set of dynamics in terms of how you're going to approach worship and how you're going to approach music. And, um, and the, the two understandings are both biblical at heart. Um, and they both have clearly conflicting implications sometimes about how we need to approach things. So it's like, so what do you do with it all? Um, I, I will say that the, the, the rub is that Christ said uh, they'll know that, he, well, he didn't say, let me start on that end. Christ didn't say that they'll know that we're Christians because we're right. He said they'll know that we're Christians because of the love that we have for one another. And it, it winds up being a struggle at times um, to figure out how do we how do we honor each other um, in the midst of different views on music and, and worship. Um, and another thing that God has continued to show me about music and worship is that uh, music, as the music styles change in the larger cultural context, um, the existing sounds and songs are still important to people, and um, especially the people that were singing those songs when they came to Christ. Um, I was talking to Dane recently, and, and he, uh, he said we, we tend, uh, I probably won't, I'm very much paraphrasing, but what I heard him to say was uh, that we tend to re- try to recreate our own conversion experience. And uh, we, we tend to take the things that, um, that God used to, to move us and change our hearts, and we tend to use those tools. And I, I agree with that. I, I think that, um, that the preferences in music are very often tied to the time that we first came to an understanding of who God was, when, that moment when the knowing reality of God um, enlightened the rest of our reality. And, um, and, and now that I've made some distinctions about different things, the Cooksbury Hymnal and the Red Hymnal, I also have to, I also have to say that, um, that in hindsight, uh, the, the music and the hymnals that I grew up with were much more fluid than, than, I, than I saw them as, as a kid. Um, and then I realized at the time. I always thought of the Red Hymnal as a little more stiff kind of hymnal and, and rigid. And, um, they, but they both had songs that I loved. I mean... When I survey the wondrous cross in both hymnals, the song by Isaac, the hymn by Isaac Watts, Charles Wesley said that he would have exchanged every hymn that he ever wrote to have written those words. You know, just just some amazing hymns that that really impacted me and changed and grew in the way that I understood God, that I understood salvation, that I understood His grace. Um, and and neither one of them. This has been a surprise to me later, as I've gone and I've pulled out my hymnal when. Um, 
uh, over the, I'll, I'll get to a little bit of this later, but recently over the last 15 years, I've been in churches, non-denominational charismatic churches that are doing the newest thing off the newest CD. And uh, that kind of winds up being, being the bent of it. And uh, every once in a while, not only do I want to go sing a hymn, but I want to go to my book shelf and I want to pull a hymnal and I want to sing it out of the hymnal. I'll, I'll bring them up. Uh, everybody, some of the guys in the band thought I was really funny. I'd have a Cokesbury hymnal sitting on my keyboard one Sunday. I was only singing one stanza of the chorus. I just wanted the book with me. And, um, and I, and I, as I looked up some of these songs, you know, and realizing it really kind of shocked me, I realized great is thy faithfulness is in neither book and victory in Jesus is in neither book. And, and great is thy faithfulness could have been, it was copyright 1923. And, um, it could have been in, in the Cokesbury that was copyright 38. Um, definitely could have been in, in the red hymnal in 64. Um, but Victory in Jesus was copyright 39 one year after the Cokesbury was published. And, uh, you know, I, the, the red hymnal had How Great Thou Art, which, um, which, which was a much newer song and uh, I- included in it. And the reality is that it, it was much more fluid. For me as a kid, it was like all of these songs that we sang, all these great hymns of the faith were fixed. It was some monolithic thing that just had never changed before I came along because I came into it and experienced it in a block. Um, it's as if all of the hymns that we were singing were somehow written by the apostles and we were singing, you know, the, the, the best translated Greek text or something. And, uh, um, and, but of course that's not, not the case. And the music was fluid and being written. And there was, uh, there was a lot that was even changing as I was born. Of course, by like 1980, I was about to start headlong into a journey that was about a lot of new music. And, um, and I, so I was in a traditional church. My father's a minister. He'd put on his, he'd, my dad would wear his robes. And after he got his doctorate, wear his big doctoral robes sometimes. He didn't always. But um, I, I enjoyed that and appreciate it. My mother uh, is a classically trained musician, a pianist, and, a, and, 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 a, and a, she studied piano and clarinet in college. Later, she studied organ and, and is, a, is a phenomenal organist. And, uh, and I would enjoy both the context of services that were um, much more structured, more of a high church, church kind of liturgical church uh, experience, and also times when we would go out to Camp Butman around Abilene and sing out of the Cooksbury Hymnal. I really experienced the pleasure of God in, in both environments. And that was before I really started into this headlong journey and started realizing what was, what was happening. Uh, with with new music being written, and I would uh, I, I started learning songs around this time, like "I Love You, Lord," and um, um, "Oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth." You know, coming out in 1981, and and then Amy Grant started exposing us to like Michael Card, "El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Yona Adonai." I fell in love with those songs. Started learning the songs of Michael W. Smith. A lot of the a lot of where I learned these songs was I'd go to Cedar Canyon to one way camps and. And I'd, um, and I'd be surrounded by lots of new music that was going on. Do we have any CETA fans out there? Yay, CETA! <laughs> yeah, CETA was a, a, even now when I think about going out to CETA Canyon, I think about approaching the, the edge of the canyon. Um, it, it's like somehow when I'd start down the road into the canyon, it's like the air would tan, would, would change. Just, there was different air there. It was like the years of people coming together and praying in that place and seeking the Lord in that place had changed the atmosphere of the air in the canyon. And, and that place for me really was, um, as a sanctuary. It was a place that was safe and a place where I met with God over and over again. Um, the summer after my, uh, third grade year, um, I was, uh, singing a lot of these new songs. And at the end of a service, after the preaching, I think maybe Stan Cosby was there that year. I wish you've ever heard Stan Cosby preach. Just, oh, just take me to heaven now. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 um, and he was, and, and I, and I just clearly heard the Lord, um, say that he was calling me to ministry and it was really disconcerting for me. I mean, I love my dad and I loved what my dad did. Um, but I, I didn't know that I wanted to do that. And, um, and I, and I, the, my, my biggest hang up in my mind was preaching, which when I've looked back at over the year, God said nothing about preaching. <laughs> he just, he just said it called me to ministry, but, um, all of a sudden all this <laughs> went up in my mind and I was pacing, literally pacing around, uh, kind of walking around thinking, am I going to go up to the altar and talk to somebody about this? But then if I talk to somebody about this, uh, then I'm kind of stuck and I don't know that I want to bring it up with somebody else. And, uh, maybe I can, you know, back my way out of it. And I, I walked up to another TO. She was, at, she actually was a TO. And I walked up to her, another third grader. And uh, now, mind you, I had not told her anything about what God had just spoken to me. And I walked up, she looked me square in the eye and said, um, you know what God's called you to do and you have to do it. And uh, just, as a, just as a side note, um, I, I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that kids can hear God and operate in ministry. There's no, there's no junior Holy Spirit set apart for kids. 
and uh, they, they and uh, and I love watching kids, seeing kids in uh, seeing kids active in ministry. But um, so as a, as a third grader, didn't know for sure what to do with it. I just know God had said something, and and I I had to kind of figure out. And I grappled with it for years, trying to figure out what I was going to do with that. And um, by the time I was in high school, I'd pretty much worked it out in my mind that. We're all in full-time ministry. We're doing, and we're full-time doing whatever God called us to do. And um, and I'll so as long as I don't somehow outright defy God, I'll be okay. And I'm in His in His plan, and I, this will all work out. And um, and I'd I'd, I'd also ha- started to see um, see visions in my mind of of like being in a some kind of a band, and I was singing, but it wasn't like a pop or a rock concert, and it was sort of associated with church. And now all that makes sense. But you have to, you have to rewind back to, this was like pre the praise and worship thing, and it really didn't make sense to me at the time, and I didn't know what to do with it, but I'd see kind of glimpses of pictures, and I was just going to trust God with it, um, but I didn't know what they meant. And there was a real rub there um, that I didn't have the right kind of voice to like sing solo or lead. I could sing, I would sing in church choirs and it really bothered me that I could like sing in church choir, but I didn't really have a, a, a voice to lead. And, and I felt this tug into the direction of music. And then I was starting to see these visions and I was like, gosh, it, it, it's very self-absorbed and it's embarrassing, a little bit embarrassing to say it out loud. But I would, I would see people that, that had great voices and I'd be like, God, you gave this amazing voice and they don't give a flip about you. <laughs> I'm like, and here I am. And all I want to do is serve you. And, uh, and you could, you could make my voice work however you wanted to. And you won't. I mean, it, uh, it's like, it's like, it's like Jonah sitting up being mad at God for saving Nineveh, you know? Um, so I, anyway, I was, I, I just, it really was, it really was a rub for me. And it sounds really, it, it, I'm sure it, probably sounds very trite to you. It even sounds trite to me as I say it, but it was, it was a real issue for me that I was grappling with God. And I, that same, that over that same time, uh, I, I, I went ahead and got into choir for the first time and I got into, have, have, have you, any of you guys participated in, in Texas UIL, like the, the all region, all state process and everything? Well, I, um, I started that process. This is my junior year in high school. I started that process and I didn't make it to district, which means I didn't make it past the first round. And, um, and all this time, I'm really try- just kind of grappling with God about uh, what exactly he's called me to do and don't understand what's going on. And something just kind of gave way in me during that junior year in high school. And I don't exactly know when it happened, and I certainly don't know why. I just sort of gave up the will to fight God about it. And I was like, whatever you want me to do, I'll do what you want me to do. I'm just going to trust you with it. And, uh, and we, our family moved to Canyon, Texas over that summer, and I decided to go ahead and stay in choir. And I got in UIL, and that year I went through the first audition process and the second one and the third one and found myself at TMEA at, at Allstate in the Allstate Choir. And it, and it was like um, God was just waiting for the thing to just go ahead and give way in me uh, to stop trying to do it in my own way. And uh, it was through some other pure gifts of God's grace that he opened the doors for me to go the next year to Hardin-Simmons and then start studying music. And the, the, the next thing that it is that I'll tell you God taught me through music is that he didn't want my song. He wanted me. That he, that he doesn't want our gift. He wants us. And, uh, and it's not that he wants us to, to, take, to take something and then work up our best thing for him and, and offer it to him. He says to obey is better than sacrifice. To do something that maybe is awkward and doesn't feel like we're competent or skilled to do in service to him because he, just because he said it. That, that's, 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 that's what he wants from us. And, and something really had to break in me, and it just broke in me around my junior, senior year in high school um, uh, in terms of the way that I was going to relate to God. And, and, um, and so I said, I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. And um, not always been successful at keeping my will in check, but, I, uh, but, but that, was a, that was a defining moment in terms of how I was going to try to position my life and how I wanted to to interact with the Lord. And my, my whole life, I feel like, has sort of been a process of, of some kind of curveballs from God. I've thought, thought he's taking me in one way, he's taking me in another direction. And finally, when I give up and I'm like, it's okay if I don't sing, then he has me sing. And I go to college, and I think that God's grooming me to go back into the United Methodist Church. That's really what I, what I believed as I was a freshman, sophomore in, in college. And I thought that he was preparing me and all this weird eclectic things in me that I, I liked the Cokesbury hymnal and I liked the red hymnal. And we would sing Bach, B minor mass, and I'd like start crying 
crying in rehearsal because it, I was so struck by the words that were going on. Had a really incredible experience at Hardin Simmons with some other students that really love the Lord. A guy that's now singing it in Opera uh, Germany, and another girl that's um, sung it at, at Salt Lake Opera and City Opera, and she's and uh, and some really incredible musicians, but people also that really love the Lord. And so I also experienced like worshiping God, like in German to Bach, you know, and, uh, and singing the, how many of you guys are familiar with the, uh, the piece? I'm sorry, this may be boring you. I'm just trying to take you some through some of my eclecticism real quick. Um, the, uh, the, did, how many of you guys are familiar with Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings? That piece has been in a lot of movies and stuff. There's a vocal arrangement of that, that he set, um, that's, that's set to the Agnus Dei text. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, grant us peace. There's a, he, he did a setting of the, of, of the adagio where he set those words. Just bowled me over in, in college. We'd perform that piece. I could just barely get through it. Just the, the awareness of the presence of God. And, um, and, uh, and I, I graduated from... Uh, Hardin Simmons, thinking that I was going to go back to the United Methodist Church, had everything all lined out again. I even knew the church that I was going to, and God thwarted it again. And I wind up in a church, like I mentioned earlier. I wind up in a non-denominational, charismatic church. It's like doing the most contemporary worship. And here I am with like a classical music background and all that other weird stuff that I described to you. And, um, and, and honestly, it was the thing that I was least prepared or qualified to do. I mean, talk about fish out of water. Sarah and I met at this church. She would come up to me during rehearsals and she'd be like, don't sing it like that again. (laughs) Sounds really goofy. You know, she'd try, try to, try to get the, try to get the classical out, you know? And, uh, and so, um, and I, I, I really, so I was, I was really trying to, to figure out how to be in the place that God, God had positioned me because the people that I was ministering with and ministering to were coming from a very different place than I was ready than I was ready to minister in music, and um, and so I, I grappled with those things. And the church that I was in has to be one of the most unique experiences, the, one of the most unique churches I've ever heard of. It was the result of multiple mergers, not church splits, but multiple mergers. I was um, I have a friend, Steve Harden, who is the uh, the lead pastor of Northway, um, the the Northway Dallas campus of the Village Church, and which that campus is the result of a merger. And I was talking to Steve Harden and I said, you know, I don't know whether it's harder to go through a merger or a split, but I'm definitely leaning toward the former, (laughs) you know, after my experience. And and we kind of shared some of our, some of our stories. When I got to the church, they were just kind of on the heels of a merger with a Pentecostal charismatic, Pentecostal uh, tongue, tongue speaking, Bible thumping, foot stomping, and a bunch of other things. I was um, th- th- wild, and and uh, people I loved. A lady that that was the secretary of the church that got saved at Robert Tilton's church here in Dallas. I mean, she was on the on the uh, extreme end of stuff, and um and, and she 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 would come back to me and, and and talk about how despite everything, how God had reached her at, at that time in her life while she was in that church, and how much the church had, had meant to her. Uh, and but uh, very different from I mean. I grew up in a United Methodist church. It was very different from her experience. We had, an, we had a, another church that we merged with that was more in the vineyard, post-vineyard prophetic thing, if you were ever uh, following that. Jack, Jack Deere, Cindy Jacobs, that kind of stuff. So we had this Pentecostal church and this sort of third wave charismatic prophetic church and then this very pragmatic business guy charismatic church that I was part of and, and, and that were all sort of slammed together as God these resulting mergers and, and there were some conflicts. I mean, some real conflicts over how to do things and, and trying to take those different personalities of the church and put them together. And what we didn't even know at the time was God was just getting us warmed up for the real deal mergers. Because at that point, what I failed to recognize was we were all still predominantly white. And we then merged with a Hispanic church. And then we merged with a church that was predominantly black. And I tell you what, some sparks flew over a number of things, not the least of which was music. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, it, but it, they, they were, they were really, they, they really were, um, good years for me because it pushed me to recognize that I couldn't just be comfortable in the way that I was going to pursue my faith. I had to, I had to stretch and I had to stretch because there were people around me that were causing me to stretch in ways that I had never imagined stretching. And, uh, uh one, one of those, uh, one of those was that the a drummer came from uh, that had grown up in, in L.A. and cut his teeth on gospel music, not the not the southern kind. He, he 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 was playing the other kind of gospel music, and he he came into our church, phenomenal drummer, 
awesome guy. And, um, and we started to learn how to play together. And, um, and, and I grew up studying classical music and I've already told you, and I'm like painfully white. And at the time I'm all into, I'm all into the new vineyard stomach coming out and I'm loving, we will dance and let the river flow and sweet mercies. And do you guys remember these songs in the secret breathe? I could sing of your love forever. Delirious comes out and, and, and vineyard covers that I could sing of your love forever. And then pretty quick, we're all like finding out about, did you feel the mountains tremble? And everybody's trying to find the music and it wasn't being distributed in the United States. When I was cleaning out my, sorry, I'm talking so fast. When I was cleaning out my office, I came across these. These are the, uh, not just a novelty item, but these are, these are, the, uh, these are the import version of, of the delirious stuff because you couldn't get it in the States. So you had to have it shipped in from England. Did any of you guys have live in the can, in the can? <laughs> Did you guys have this? Yeah, anyway, it brought back some memories when I was packing up all this stuff. So I was, and I was big on Dennis Jernigan and I was sort of my, some of my signature stuff. And I, and, and so my, my, this Kevin that's playing drums is bringing me music and he's like bringing me Fred Hammond and Kirk Franklin and Donnie McClurkin. And, um, and I'd say, do you see me? I mean, <laughs> do you know what it sounds like when a white boy that's had too much classical training starts singing Fred Hammond? <laughs> you know, you're not going to like the song when I finish it. And, uh, <laughs> And somehow he managed to like endure with me through uh, all these, all this stuff. We'd bring out a passion CD, which never came out sounding quite right. Between my classical twist and his, his gospel infusion, it never quite sounded like the CD. And I remember one day we were in worship and uh, we were singing Better Is One Day or something along those lines. And I remember looking back at Kevin playing drums and we've been playing for several years together at this point. And I look back at him and I just became vividly aware that he was never having the opportunity to worship God in his heart language. And it was because of me, because I was choosing the music. And um, just the, the awareness, the, the weight um, of this guy that I loved. And it wasn't, I want to make sure that I'm clear, it wasn't that I was just trying to make room for another musician, because somebody had come in and they, they had something they wanted to do. Kevin and I had started, there was a relationship that had developed between Kevin, and I, I love Kevin. And um, we, were, we really were getting a chance to do some really incredible ministry together. And my heart started to break in, in that moment in, in the presence of God as we worshiped. And I, and I just realized that I, I cared less about how stupid I was going to look singing the music than, than this compelling thing that was coming over me that I wanted Kevin to be able to release the sound to God that made sense to him from his heart. And... Um, <laughs> and, and, and I did sound stupid doing the songs, um, but, but he, but he, but he appreciated it. And, um, and, and it, it, I had to overcome some, some fears and some discomfort of doing things that were uncomfortable to get there. Um, again, uh, what, what drove us was that the Christ of love was compelling us. And, and Kevin was also a barber in town and his shop was primarily a, a black shop. And, uh, he had come, I'd come over and see him, uh, bring him a reference recording or something for a rehearsal we were going to do. And he'd love to stop and introduce his music pastor and, uh, to his dumbfounded clientele who were like, what the, you have a white music pastor. And he, he really, now and I, I, I joke about it. He, he, he really loved to do that and get, get reactions out of people. But, um, <laughs> get get used by my friend Kevin. And um but at the same time he really did endure some some pretty pointed criticism and some scorn for people that thought that he had sold out being in a white church. And uh and I got my share of weird questions and looks about what was I doing and why was I doing it because it didn't seem to make sense to people. But at the end of the day all the critics had to deal with the fact that uh that they couldn't just box Kevin and I off to say we were in a church together because we just liked the same kind of music and it was just our little club where we made ourselves feel good. People knew what he listened to in his shop because he played it in his shop. And people knew me and knew what I did. And whether people understood it or not, the truth is that it was the love of Christ that was compelling us both. That Christ says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples when you have love for one another. And I talked earlier about generational preferences in music, and there are obviously also cultural preferences in music that, uh, that drive how we approach worship and the kind of music that we like to use. Um, and, and we know the origin of cultures. Um, in, in Genesis, 
uh, a bunch of people got together and decided that they were just going to take the place of God and be God in God's place and, uh, and build the Tower of Babel. And God said, oh, no. And he confused their languages, and there was a proliferation of cultures. And, um, and, and God, God dealt with the situation. But as we see the unfolding of redemption story, what we see is that it wasn't punitive. God was not doing, taking a punitive action. Um, he also promises in this unfolding of redemption story that one day he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And when we see that happen in Acts, what's the first thing that they do? They share the gospel in languages they don't know. Everyone there hears the gospel in their own language. Um, God says, what I, what, I, what I did there that not only was not punitive because the cultures, you look on it at Revelation and it, he's not going to somehow draw back that punitive action and then we all somehow become the same again. He says in heaven that every tribe and tongue and nation will worship before the throne. That, uh, that right now, all, all, the, all those saints that have gone before, there's this mixing of all of these languages and cultures that aren't, that aren't losing their distinction in heaven. And um, God, God, is, God is so good. God is so good that he can take us at our worst and he can deal with situations and he can set us up for things that we couldn't have even imagined. The, 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 the glorious nature of, of uh, seeing the worship that's rising from the earth today as we're in this unprecedented place where we actually get to s- so many people have gotten to now go all the way across the world and see what's going on around the world. That just like um, I, in, in Ephesians 1 when I talked at the beginning that the rule of Christ transcends the material world, it transcends the heavenly realm, it even transcends time itself. This this glorious, his glorious inheritance that's in the saints is something that transcends the material world. There are people we never know in China and in South America and in the UAE and in Cambodia that are worshiping the Lord that are that we share in this glorious inheritance, that, that it's all one inheritance that we are part of, that in the heavenlies there are people worshiping the Lord, the saints that have gone before. Hebrews remind us that, that there's a great cloud of witnesses um, that, 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 that surrounds us. And, and why does Hebrews say that he's reminding us about the great cloud of witnesses? He says, so you can throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles and you can run with endurance. We, we can't run with endurance as long as we're boxed off in our own little world. There's something about, there's something about us coming together as the body of Christ and allowing the differences instead of dividing us to allow the richness of the glory of God that's been poured out and the diversity of who we are, uh, by age, by ethnicity, whatever it is, to see God bring something together that's bigger than we could be on ourselves or do on our own or ever find on our own left to our own devices. Yeah. Yes, Lord, bring it. And uh, the most beautiful part of this whole thing is that it transcends time. Sorry, I was just, um, I didn't, I actually took this out of my notes. So I can't, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know if it fits, but now that I've had to stop and almost cry, you deserve to know why. Um, uh, last, because of the way that this process developed here, um, uh, the first conversation that I had with the search committee was in 2009. So uh, it didn't happen just re- recently. We've been in conversations for quite a while. And, um, and that conversation, um, that the night we, we finished, I talked to the, the search committee and I went home and I called up my parents. My dad was in a long, had been in a long struggle with his health. He was in the hospital and, and I called him up and, uh, to talk to him about, uh, how excited I was that I could feel God reawakening dreams in my heart. And I, th- I said, I think, God's, I think God's opening a door here. And I think God's, um, God's about to, to bring something together that, that's been, in it, uh, for sure, in my heart a long time in the making. And so I, I, I called my dad, and I was talking to him about it. He was as clear as I had spoken to him in a long time, right there tracking with me. And as I was excited and I was telling him what was going on and the st- stuff that God was stirring up in my heart, um, he, was, he was right there with me and getting excited about it and talking to me. And, um, and, uh, and, and we talked about it and, and prayed about the situation. And without ever insinuating that in any way he wasn't proud of the ministry I was doing at Trinity, I knew that he knew that God's hand was on this moment. And, um, and uh, that, um, that conversation was the last, uh, last lucid conversation I had with my dad. He passed away a few weeks later, and 
Um, going through the, 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 the freshness of, of, of losing my father, who was an amazing man, incredibly well-respected in the North Texas Conference, a pastor to a district superintendent, had an amazing ability to be able to cross over all sorts of lines, cultural lines, had, had, had the ability to cross over the whole, uh, is there a Kleenex somewhere? It's pathetic. Um, is there, <laughs> thank you, um, uh, cr- crossed, over, crossed over those lines in um even even over the kind of the liberal conservative divide, people disagree with my dad, but they wouldn't um, they they wouldn't just deliberately cross him because they respected him and they loved him and he got put in a lot of really interesting positions by uh, district superintendents and bishops because he had that but um he uh, but i walked I watched him walk out uh, these things that i 'm talking about I watched him walk out um, honoring honoring people who come from a different place because he had a kingdom perspective because he had in his heart that, um, that it really, that God's called us to something greater than us just fulfilling our destiny in God in some isolated sense. That God's called us to lay down our, our, our lives. I, I appreciated so much what uh, Dr. Dunnigan shared this morning about submission. It so applies to all of this. I don't want for an instant to be implying that because worship is bigger than the styles I like, that I don't need to worship with the styles I like. You, you know the things that, that open your heart and that mean, are meaningful to you, that, that have, have carry with them a sense of the presence and the reality of God, and you need to guard those things. I'm not saying that somehow we need to just be selfless and set aside what we like. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that we need to honor the fact that other people um, have experienced God and are experiencing God in different ways. And the, the beauty of it is that when, just like that slide this morning, where the mission, my mission comes underneath the headship of Christ and I'm submitted, mutually submitted with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that I lose out on the things that God's placed in my heart. As a matter of fact, it's those very moments where they start to explode. And I actually experience the reality of what God spoke to my heart that I was so desperately trying to accomplish on my own before I could submit it to him. Um, in, in, in way of closing, I... I want to share with you an interest that kind of God's, God's recently started to stir in my heart. Um, I've, uh, I've really become really fond, uh, really become enamored with the, with the hymns of Charles Wesley. My, my wife, my wife, Sarah would probably call it an obsession, but, um, I've, I've started reading through it. Charles Wesley writing, uh, some 9,000 pieces of verse hymns and other, other poetry in his lifetime. One of the most prolific writers in the English language period. Um, and, uh, and, and to boot, he had, uh, most of what he wrote went under the editorial pen of John Wesley. It's not a bad person to have around to kind of help hone your voice. And so, um, so just this amazingly prolific writer and, um, going back and starting to look through the, the hymns that he, that he wrote, the, uh, the, the 64 hymnal, the new method United Methodist hymnal, the first song is, Oh, 4,000 tongues to sing it. And it is, Oh, 4,000 tongues to sing because in 1780, John Wesley, the, 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 the hymn book for the people called Methodists started with Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. It's part of, part of the historical heritage of the hymns that they put together for the people that, that were called Methodists to sing. And, um, and uh, uh, my mother uh, purchased this uh, for me, an 1821 copy of the, the hymns for the people called the Methodists. And there's a, the, the first song is, of course, Oh, Four Thousand Tongues to Sing. But the, the second song, uh, Come Sinners to the Gospel Feast, uh, which has been used, it's considerably more obscure, but that text, um, it really carries with it um, one of the, I'm going to step out on a limb here because I'm so not a theologian, so those of you who've been to seminary, feel free to uh, scold me afterwards if I mistake this, but one, one of the fundamental uh, distinctives of, of Wesleyanism is that we, we really don't believe that we get to receive the grace of God and then go take it for ourselves, that we don't, we don't get to... Uh, to take the goodness of God and then just hole off, but that the invitation is to everyone. The invitation is to everyone. And uh, I've been reading through these words and, um, and, uh, and started to set some of them, and, and, and that's where I want to end tonight is by sharing this with you. Come sinners to the gospel feast, that the invitation is an invitation to all.